knowledge is power. If people know and if they understand and they have knowledge, they are in control. If we, as scientists, and if medicine is science, then we should not base our conclusions on beliefs, not on thoughts, only on knowledge. It is time to Darwinize that medicine, that paramedicine, convert medicine and paramedicine in epistemology, the science of knowledge. We have to start thinking about age-related medicine, but not to prolong life, no, to have high quality of life. People live 83, 84 years as their average life expectancy. And the question should be, why those people reach that incredible age and if we look to medicine, then we see that medicine is not based on quality of life. Medicine is based on life expectancy. Chronic disease is an accelerated aging process that we have to look for natural interventions which have anti-aging effect. We need interventions which perhaps we can rob from evolutionary biology. The knowledge of evolutionary biology can help us to provide a very high quality of life in people uh, who reach 80, 85, 90 years. Everybody is always talking about how can we live forever. But that should not be the question. The question should be how can we reach our programmed life expectancy in the nicest way. Those elder people who live exactly in the same environment as we do, but they stay healthy. What is their secret? They keep social active. That they don't overeat. They keep moving. They are not sedentary. A lot of people, they suffer from the fear of death. People of 90, 95 years old who age with a high quality of life, they're not afraid of the death. And when you ask them, why are you not afraid of the death? Then the answer is, because I am satisfied. I reached my purpose of life. But you can only reach that point if your health produces the liberty of conceiving and reaching the purpose of life. Leo, fantastic to have you on Speaking Naturally. Um, we're going to have a really interesting conversation. I, I don't think you ever engage in conversations that are not interesting. So can we just kick off, Leo, by just you giving a little bit of your background, where you come from, because we're going to be looking at from a PNI psychoneuroimmunology perspective, but love to have a little bit of background to kick off. Okay, so thanks, uh, Robert. I think it's going to be a real uh, interesting uh, conversation. I hope it's going to be a discussion because that's that's more that's nicer, uh, exactly. and conflictive discussion. That that would be the good, the good thing. So my background is uh, so I'm Leon Prevon. I uh, have a PhD in in clinical psychoneuroimmunology and evolutionary medicine. 
My background is uh, I'm a medical physiologist and biochemist. I also studied uh, physiotherapy. I have four kids. And um, this year, in, in, in March, we will celebrate 35 years of, um, of the origin of clinical psychoneuroimmunology. Not psychoneuroimmunology, because that's not ours, but the clinical part is. And... Um, yeah what and and uh, we have uh, only one purpose i think with that is is make that science which is a philosophy it's not a it's not a therapy it's a science it's a philosophy basic to all medical and paramedical disciplines so that's the only purpose we have very small not not at all ambitious yeah and that's, <laughs> that's well, Leo, just just let's start with that so obviously when you bring together the notion of clinical with psycho neuroimmunology you're bringing together three super systems in the body how hmm. does that change perspective on human beings and health compared with say a siloed mainstream lens or even perhaps a holistic alternative lens hmm. you know whether it's through traditional systems or or more recent modalities of alternative medicine. How does that change the perspective? Look, uh, obviously it's called psychoneuroimmunology, and that's the only and the only reason for that is is that we had to make it short. Uh, but the reality is, it's psychoneuroendocrino socio metabolo immunology, uh, which which um, connects the six big systems, uh, which which communicate at every level in the human body and with the environment so and, and it also you have a very strong um recognition of the importance of of evolution evolutionary yes. biology perspective as well don't you uh, obviously without um, uh, evolutionary view it's very difficult to understand the proximate problems of you of 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 us of plants of whatever animal uh, so if you only look at health and disease through approximate view you miss so many details and i'm calling them details uh, to uh, to not exaggerate but those details they they um, determine the way we cope with the modern um, environment the modern life uh, which is not which is not the best life homo sapiens ever uh, lived we, we, we're gonna get we're gonna get into that i want to start with a really basic question and and um i posed this to a group of um 150 or so practitioners a, a few weeks ago um and had people scratching their head and it's an interesting idea to get a perspective on what life is we know that living systems tend to be wet and squelchy we know that they have nucleic acids that have turned into very elaborate patterns that contain genetic information um, we also understand the differences between mobile genetic elements and viruses that contain the genetic elements but then rely on an mm. organism for replication so when we think about what life is from from your perspective what the hell is life, Leo? I, I I don't doubt about my answer. So 
<laughs> Life is energy. Uh, it's uh, that's that's what we that what's why I always say it's all about energy. If if you look at if you look at the um, the the probability of how life started, yeah, it definitely did not. It can never have started on Earth on its own. It was impossible. If you look to the abiotic um, environment uh, before before organisms were developed, then you see that that there is an enormous amount of of of, of elements which have never been on Earth. Yeah. Uh, and and for me they they have been raining out of the universe and yeah, you know, I, I know there is a, a, a hypothesis about sperma uh, raining out of the universe but that's not necessary to to explain how life started uh, no, and you, of course that 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 doesn't actually deal with origin it just deals with the distribution of these components that turned into life exactly um, and i mean we you and i we grew up in the same era and obviously we, we were sort of taught about this primordial soup model and the nucleic acids sort of magically came together and like you i've also drifted a long way away from that many years ago but but when you come so i love the fact that you're talking about energy and of course you're not just talking about energy in terms of metabolic energy just talk to me more about what you mean by energy and 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 applying that to the origins of life how these how we start to get this stardust turning into an active system that becomes then a metabolic system mm. The, the, the inter if, if you look at, at interaction between cells, if you look at a cell, just whatever cell of a plant, uh, of whatever, and you take the nucleus of the cell out and you put whatever other nucleus in it, it can be a, a cancerous nucleus or a nucleus from, from whatever organism with some kind of disease, yeah. So uh, something which has been disturbed, if the energy producing, let's say, um, organelles or perhaps um, uh, micro RNA molecules are intact, there is no disturbance afterwards. The cell can divide and what comes out two completely healthy cells. So you cannot you cannot say that life is based on genes. That is that's impossible, mm -hmm. because if that would be the case, then then manipulating genes things should change, but they don't need to change at all if energy is in in order. And then, but then you have to look at the word energy in a very broad perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, energy is about communication. Yeah. It's not nothing else than communication. And if things communicate with each other, there is always an energetic benefit. Yeah. Uh, and, and that benefit, that communication is has ha, has have to be um, have, has to have been um, relevant uh, to the origin of life. I know that you're going to ask me about ET. <laughs> well, uh, you, you've you've indirectly already mentioned it to to a degree, but yes, I mean uh, extraterrestrial 
origins obviously uh, seem to be um, pretty much uh, a fairly sort of normal conversation in evolutionary biology now just for the for the reason that you mentioned that that many of the elements do appear to have um, come in whether it's on a panspermia or you know on, on meteors or other systems or planetary collisions or breakup of galaxies you name it there's so many ways in which it could have happened but could I first ask you uh, why ET exists definitely there is no nobody doubts about that the NASA doesn't doubt about it we only can find them that's the only thing yeah. but do you really think that ET is going to visit us well, I mean, my, my, my sense is that what, what kind of time period are we looking at? And does the 400 nanometer to 800 nanometer visual perception we have limit our ability to see energy? And I, I think from um, where I'm at with it is that I don't think that life always needs to exist in a physical form in which humans can perceive them. And I think... Uh, you know, we're seeing a lot of movement now on disclosure projects from from uh, people, some controversial people like Stephen Greer and others. Um, and uh, and yes, I think there's there's no doubt in my mind that governments, um, with NASA's help, for example, are getting the public ready for recognizing that we are far from alone. Um, okay. And um, so that I mean that that's my view in a nutshell, without any detail. How how, how about yours? Mm. I I also I, I completely agree that that uh, energy is is not something we can uh, we can determine with human words. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that for the word that we use the word energy, and we do not have other words to describe what it really is. Yeah, that's a problem of our vocabulary, but it doesn't mean that it does not exist. If you say 400 nanometer till 800 nanometers, exactly, we can't see it. But but we should also think not in microcosmos, but also in the macrocosmos. Yeah. Yeah. Both both parts are invisible for us. Yeah. But but of course, one one word that um, different cultures have used are words to the effect of God and source um the you know and and you know in in the electromagnetic area we increasingly use terms like subtle energy energy below the level at which we can currently detect energy flows and what we understand is that some of these very low energies can be extremely coherent and the more we understand even about biochemical processes the more we understand that there is a a biofield effect where certain gradients and control is happening at an energetic level before it happens at a measurable biochemical level. But mm. um, it's so I, I think, Leo, would we be in agreement that the a, a new frontier of medicine that we're moving into, but we are babes in the wood is actually energy medicine? Do you think our, our current sort of genetic molecular biochemical view of medicine limits our perception and our ability to extract full potential from human beings we have to um, make step forwards or backwards whatever you want uh, but you can uh, uh, when Dobsonsky said um, you cannot understand the evolution without biology yeah. and, and, and you cannot understand medicine without biology that means you cannot understand medicine without evolutionary biology 
But it's all biochemistry. And there's one word failing and lacking, which is called physics. And, and physics is much faster than biochemics. It's it's a, it's much smaller uh, things on a physical level. They start on on a non-visual uh, um, view, and so you can you can you perhaps you can measure it, but we can we cannot even measure very small tumors. So so how could we measure all those very very small physical things? So hundred percent, yeah. And that's why we have to add to Dobzhansky's um, definition the world the word quantum biology, yeah. Yeah. which means and, what about, and, and biophysics. I mean, we, biophysics. The quantum we, we biophysics. Yeah, that's the word. That's the word. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Quantum biophysics, and that means uh, movements because that's it. that's energy. Move, yeah. Energy is nothing more, nothing more, and nothing less than. Movement, communication between protons, between antiprotons, but probably, perhaps, protons are not the smallest uh, atoms, uh, things in 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 life. Perhaps there are even smaller things, on not on a nanobiology level, but on a pico nanobiology level, which is so small that we we have nothing to measure that. Yeah, scale um, scale is a is a limitation that we have. We we have a problem exactly. with the scale is too macro or too micro because exactly. we're not and we have yeah. Um just tell me on coming back to more conventional ideas of evolution and the role of viruses. You know, I, I'm fascinated by the fact that that mm-hmm. we could have had a global population put into a place of fear about one virus that largely you know, everyone has agreed is likely to have emerged from gain of function research. Um, However, we have hundreds of thousands of different viruses and many more to be discovered, many in the oceans, many in aerial and terrestrial environments. Um, And we have mobile genetic elements as well, parts Mm. of viruses that seem to. Now, you know, the vast, I, I think out of these probably millions of different viruses, there are only about 200 that have ever been associated with disease. So we have to say most of the time they're benevolent or they're, you know, mutual, mutualistic or commensal. Um, Could they play an important role in evolution, this idea of genetic exchange between organisms? Uh, Look, if if you see the big smokers Mm. on on the sea, uh, in the depth of the deepest oceans, uh, where incredible hot water comes out and and um, reacts with the cold water with, with a very high pressure that you can see there that that elements are converted in a kind of a virus. Yeah. Uh, so so it's not that difficult to understand. I think that that there are there have to be not I don't think million. I think billions of, of viruses. If if you see in Nepal, the glacier, uh, which is um, disappearing, they already found in the disappearing ice fifteen million different viruses. Uh, the the, the SARS CoV two thing. Yeah, it's just one of those uh, co- uh, SARS-CoV uh, viruses in that gletcher, um, yeah. and 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 we have been in- investigating. I don't, I, I really do not doubt that the SARS-CoV-2 virus comes from there. 
from from glaciers uh, who conserve viruses because viruses love cold and 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 um, and uh, dryness. You, you, so you don't you don't think it came out of a bat cave and then was fiddled around and engineered in a in a Wuhan? Um, no, I, I think it it comes from the glacier. And perhaps afterwards, this has been manipulated. I, I don't know, but it has a, a natural origin. And why not? If you look, if you look at at all the viruses we've we are we are discovering, is what you say. There are only a few producing illness. Look at look at your genes. Ninety seven percent have a viral origin. Yeah. Uh, there is there is one uh, moving around which is called Hermes. Yeah. And, the, and that thing is responsible for the production of the placenta. Yes. Uh, and that has become a human mRNA virus, which is part of our DNA. Yeah. And what is happening with SARS-CoV-2? I don't know if you, if you already uh, um, found that, but, but SARS-CoV-2 is capable of infiltrating our DNA. Yes. If people have been vaccinated two or three times and have suffered the disease two, two or three times, the probability that the virus is now part of their somatic DNA is very high. Yes. So, so the virus is searching for, for, for being a friend of ours. And yeah, that we, is, well, when we first reported on that, it was, uh, we were accused of uh, releasing misinformation. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. One of the things we were looking at very early on, yes, uh, absolutely. So, so obviously, the virome becomes ever more important. We understand less about it than the microbiome that's associated with bacteria. Um, when people become of the two hundred or so viruses that uh, can create disease, obviously, they don't always create disease in everyone. So they're not, you know, obligate pathogens as such okay. so when we look at even the disease causing viruses do they have benefits as well in terms of building um an immune a stronger immune system for example if if, if you if you if you look at the people who are infected and and i don't know if that's the good word yeah mm -hmm are infiltrated by a, a, a virus which can produce disease in, in person X, but does not produce it in person Y, yeah, means that there has to be some benefit behind that infiltration. Okay. Uh, um, people who, th who say that life is is only life when it can proliferate independently, then they say that the virus is not a living thing, which I think is very, very, very far away from the truth. Uh, because if you see the strategies with which viruses can hijack our immune system, uh, that is intelligence. And energy for me is the same as intelligence. So, so, so they have, they are intelligent. It's, it's, it's not a random process, is it? There's no. a, there, there is, a, there is a deliberate um, direction of, of communication, if you like. Yeah. I, I love that idea of yeah. um, talking about energy as, as, as a communication. So on that point, I think um, you and I have got a very similar view 
about the fact that when we look at health, we're looking at something that's a long way away from just the absence of disease and resilience in its broader sense, physiological, psychological, metabolic, etc. Resilience is something we're looking for. And you're arguing that um, people are becoming less resilient. We, you, you talk about Homo sapiens fragilis versus mm. Homo sapiens robusta. Can you just talk through what you think is actually happening in current day, um, you know, modern life? Mm. Why are we becoming more and more fragile as a species? Yeah, look, if, if, if we just look to the last 2000 years, you don't have to look further back. And you see that only till 250 years ago, we had to adapt to evolution, to, to environmental changes. We've always adapted to that. But we never, ever lived a life in which the environment was adapted to us. Mm. Homo sapiens did that. Homo sapiens changed the sequence of evolutionary biology said, no, uh, this is going to kill us. This is, uh, so what we have to do by intelligence, uh, we, as if we were in, more intelligent, we turn it around. We, we, we produce an environment um, which is comfortable for us, yeah. which is really the highest purpose, uh, the biggest purpose of, of evolution. Evolution, uh, we want to survive and reproduce. And and to be very honest, we have we have done that. It's incredible uh, how how intelligent we seemed to be. Let's say, let's say, but what we have done is we went over an edge. So which means that now we lack we lack all those triggers which made us anti fragile. I I don't think that the word resilient. Um, covers the content because resilience has still an adaptive function. So okay. it's not innovative. It is the use of, of old, already known survival strategies. And, 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 but, but in, in evolutionary way of thinking, those changes they happened through, uh, uh, through a period of 30,000 years, not in two years or 50 years. Uh, so we had time to adapt. And we developed, not we, the organisms develop innovative, innovative solutions when they suffer more than three um, challenges at the same time. Uh, Look at look at how we treat bacteria. Look at how we treat cancer. Uh, they they're all triple treatments nowadays. Because if you do not use a triple treatment, the bacteria is capable of escaping. So you need at least three treatments to prevent to prevent resistance. But the but the other way around is the same thing. If you suffer. Um, more than two um, challenges at the same time, you develop so-called energetic, innovative strategies. Mm -hmm. We are not doing that anymore because we don't suffer known um, problems. 
which we have always suffered and who and which which then produced those innovative metabolic strategies energetic we, we, i mean we we we've been um, just to play devil's advocate we've now had um the arrival of um of technology we've got the arrival of the digital age and we've got um levels of psychosocial stress that are probably off the scale in terms of what we met but are you suggesting that the time available and the change in the kind of stresses that we're exposed to means that we're so if we look at the the rise and in incidence of of mental health challenges amongst the younger population that would be an indicator that we're not well adapted to this environment so you're saying essentially there hasn't been enough time and then the nature of the stressor keeps changing so we can't innovate around it mm. uh if you look if you look at, at at the type of challenge they have got nothing to do with survival nothing mm -hmm. and if it's not, it's got nothing to do with survival you you are not going to adapt uh, th those changes we we'll, we we suffer from now they only produce disease but we but we die at six, 60 years uh, of age so you don't need any evolutionary adaptation because we already uh, reproduced. So, so that's why there are no challenges. They are distress factors. Uh, yeah. we, 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 they don't make us stronger. Uh, the, the thing is, they are a kind of a psychological trauma. Yeah. Um, a psychological trauma because it's the following thing. We don't, we don't think anymore because of thinking. Yeah. Uh, so, but if, so, but if it, uh, you know, if it affects young people, and then it affects the, their ability to form relationships and then have families. I mean, uh, we're looking at some of the demographics and the population statistics and fertility st st statistics that are emerging. There's a disturbing trend that's beginning um, that that could have a survival impact, but we're good. really only measuring it over the last few years good thing good thing but it's the, but it will still take a few thousand years yes exactly and so, i don't want my kids i don't want don't want my kids to be part of that evolutionary competition yes because the th the thing is they will be ill they have to become ill they have to become infertile uh, they have to die at time not too late yeah and then we could adapt uh, in an accelerating way. But perhaps we can do the same thing without the need to suffer disease, without the need becoming infertile, because, because perhaps we can use triggers, challenges, which is a vaccine against modern life. Yeah, you, you've made a, an interesting point. A, a lot of people are confused by the relationship between lifespan and evolutionary success or robustness of our species. Mainstream medicine keeps on saying, look, we've achieved a longer life than, than ever, but but um, you've just made that point. Could you just sort of reinforce that the two are entirely separate things? I think what you're also saying is if you take a modern day human and put them in a Paleolithic environment, they wouldn't do so well. No, they don't survive. <laughs> uh, the, and the that's what you mean by robustness. That's the kind of robustness. And let's flip it. Can we build a degree? Will our, will our genotype, is it still 
is there enough information within us to be able to transform our outcomes so that we can all become more robust? I think that robustness um, is a plan, which, which, so which, which is the default plan. That is how it should be, because, because otherwise, um, otherwise crocodiles would never have survived 500 million years. Yeah, they're still there, and 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 that means they are they have to be crocodile robustness, and it, so so that we that we are here means that we are definitely robust. We mm. should be robust. But what happened with the robustness is if you don't use it, you lose it. Uh, so, so, so that means uh, we have a lack of using our the need of robustness. Yeah. And so it's not that difficult to re-activate um, a default plan because it's a default plan. Yeah. Uh, nevertheless, the 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 hypothesis that we only change 0.1% at a genetic level in the last million year, that is perhaps true, but it is not true that that means that we haven't changed. If you see the, the genes that changed, uh, that were only two, 27 genes, it's not more. But if you look at those genes, uh, then you see, wow, no, no, they have made a huge impact in a new species. So I don't believe at all that we are still Paleolithic. Not at all, not at all. We really are have become Homo sapiens robustus, not Homo fragilis, not Homo erectus. We are different species, and we are not able to survive um, circumstances, and that doesn't matter which we had to survive before. Mm. But that is not important. What is important is how can we reactivate the robust phenotype in a in a modern society in which quite a few let's say health um, attacking risk factors are out of our influence yeah. uh, i would love to to um, have influence on air pollution but the thing is i am now sitting in a garage and i'm inspiring an enormous amount of nanoparticles but i but but it does not affect me i know for sure but because i've become more robust again yes yes no look um fantastic um the mainstream medical system and public health like to talk about this idea of disease prevention that's what we're kind of shooting for um some of us are sensing that if we focus on that disease prevention and we use markers disease-based markers we actually don't create health we don't regenerate health mm. from your perspective how different are these strategies uh, we, we get some people saying look i think you're just using different words for the same thing but from a cpni a clinical psychoneuroimmunology perspective can we regenerate health and do, do this in a different way um, mm. from, from the kind of standard public health disease prevention approaches that are out there? Yeah, I, I think that the best thing is to is just use an, 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 an example. If you look at the IARC, -E uh, the, the cancer risk factors, 
They say red meat is cancerous. And they say, so to prevent the cancer, you should not eat red meat. And then I ask, hmm, is that true? Okay, that is perhaps cancer prevention in an environment in which that red meat is perhaps not so good. But let's let's turn it around. To stay healthy, the first thing you have to take care of is a very healthy brain. If you do not nourish the brain with all the essential things it needs, then you then then you cannot even prevent disease. So to stay healthy, then the first thing is use nutrition as a structural way of thinking. So without without meat, we would have a lack of arachidonic acid, mm. and. And people say, "Oh, but then you can then you and you eat plants." Now we we can't we cannot produce ergodonic acid from plant uh, oil. So if you look at that, then at once that red meat is not uh, cancerous anymore. No, it maintains health, which is not the same as prevent disease. Good, good point, because so many people are locked into this notion that that uh, red meat exists as a protein source, not as a fatty acid source. Um, mm. From there, what's what are your views on lab-grown meat? Um, look, if 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 I look to um, wild meat like deer, and and even the black boar yeah, of which we in Spain make jamón de jabugo, yeah. Mm. And we look to a gnu and uh, a kangaroo. There's a very interesting thing. Uh, one of the substances in red meat, but only in red meat, which we have grown, which we have domesticated, yeah, there is a level of a sugar, which is called NOI5GC. That sugar, when it reaches a certain amount in red meat, definitely produces a postprandial inflammatory response without any doubt uh, that it has been proven in healthy and non-healthy people. Yeah. Then you let people eat kangaroo and you or you let people eat deer and there is no inflammatory response at all. Why? Because the NOI5GC level is so low that it doesn't affect us. And what is logical is that we have eaten that. If we start agriculture and start domesticate um, cows, goats, sheep, and pigs, and we and we measure the level of NOI5GC in those four animals, they are incredible high. You know what what that means at an evolutionary uh, level. We we have never eaten them. We have used them for the milk. We have used them as our pets, but we have never eaten. It's impossible that we have started eating them, and but so we started eating them much uh, when we killed all big mammals, yeah. and then we said, okay, now we we're going to eat our pets. Yep. Those because, animals, because they were easy to domesticate. Of course, of yep. course, they were easy to domesticate. They, those animals, um, we should drink the non-pasteurized milk of them because that's that's how they were in our benefit and we were in their benefit. Mm. 
that was a good thing. Yeah. And but but if you do not eat red meat from uh, a wild source, you're really going to have problem in the development in the development and the function of your brain. Start with with in this life in this life. Uh, we can do all kinds of things, but but make it stupidly simple, as Einstein already said. Uh, so first, make your nutrition your medicine. But I really, it's about nutrition. It's also not about all the supplements uh, because that's nutrition. That is not nutrition. First, nutrition, and then let's see what's more needed. That's also a CPNI. Few. This is also the reason that you take people into the Pyrenees and get them to hunt for their own wild animals to to eat them. Uh, for instance, in the wild. Yeah. yeah, and we have to kill them ourselves. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, and and that 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 uh, that is a feeling for a lot of people. They they are trembling. They're trembling. They've never killed an, an animal. They they eat, yeah. but there's such a. Um, and rich, it's, it makes people so, uh, the, the experience is so beneficial, you cannot imagine. So, so we can summarize on that point saying, right, factory farming, always a problem. And guess what? We're eating the wrong species. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's good me, yes. F fantastic. So um, when we look at the idea of uh, mainstream medicine has developed particularly since um, the organic chemistry revolution in the post-World War period where um, drug companies could um, um, essentially patent molecules, new-to-nature molecules. And we now have a system where there are, you know, so-called essential medicines out there. The WHO has got a list of them. They had a list they developed in 1977. I think the most recent update is... Uh, is uh, 2021 but bottom line is what well, we we can also think about essential vitamins that that we need to ingest in our food because our bodies can't make it they're using this term essential around medicines mm. and most people who go to a general practitioner get given some kind of new to nature often patented medicine now mm. have we got to a stage where we've become so fragile that some of these medicines genuinely meet an unmet human health need? Okay. Is the whole thing irrelevant? Hmm. So is, is this a commercial thing or a, a health thing? Well, it, it, it's, you know, do if we were to remove tomorrow all the drugs that ever existed, including all of WHO's essential medicines, hmm. we have a catastrophe or would human beings find you know do we have the strategies available to us and the environments available to us to provide all the needs that we have without those medicines mm. i i think that that you that you're asking a question which are four sub questions so i'm going to 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 answer those sub questions because okay. the, the question is big yeah. the only way to find out is, is doing the following thing um, is comparative medicine between us and people who still live a human life and see what challenges they 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 survive and how do they survive them yeah compared with us yeah 
But it's a very difficult comparison because we live in, in a very toxic environment and they live in a, an, another environment. Yeah. So that's it's not it's not a real comparison. You're looking at people who who still live in indigenous sort of tribal societies, for yeah. example, like the Yanomami Indians in the Amazons, or, or the 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 Bushmen. I've been in Botswana with the Bushmen, and they really live very very nearby those those Bushmen to to our original life. If you see them, they are incredible healthy, mm. but if they're ill. They do something. Uh, it's not all spontaneous curing. Uh, if they're ill, if they have diarrhea, if they have an infection, and they have a lot of infections, they they search for plants and herbs to cure themselves. Uh, so, so, so the use of nature as a medicine uh, is nothing new. I, I definitely know that um, aunts who get ill. Uh, they they also uh, search for all kind of micro substances to to um, cure the whole tribe. So so looking for net medicine, looking for medicine is nothing new. I think that's part of evolutionary biology. But but they are also, if you like, more epigenetically adapted to those kind of environments. You could exactly. argue we are perhaps more epigenetically adapted to this modern day polluted contaminated crazy world that we live in yeah. but and is that why we actually need some of the medicines ironically they the who say they need a lot of those medicines to use in places like sub-saharan africa um southern asia south america that's the that's that is the opposite of course but that, that but because that is obviously a beautiful market uh, of innocent people of naive people who, th who who think that paracetamol is better than using a herb, uh, but 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 the word essential would mean young people, young people, healthy people, healthy people with a flu, with some some infection. Do they need a medicine? Probably not. Yeah. But there is one thing we should not forget: it's people become too old. And for me, that is too old. <laughs> and then there is a, a moment that this, the tissue is not, um, you, you cannot recover it anymore. Uh, terminal state of diseases. There, perhaps, those medicines are essential, but not for uh, the maintenance or the recovery of health. No, just for postponing death. Um, so we, we, we have a big problem in society in the sense that um, there's still very few people who live, if you like, an industrialized lifestyle mm. who are able to think that the real medicine relates to their behavior, their choices, what they're eating, how they're choosing to rest or sleep or um, recreate or interact with other people or manage stress. That That's the real medicine. And I... Um, that is, of course, a big part of what you are teaching in clinical psychoneuroimmunology, is it not? We, we, we talk about the big, the big 13. Uh, a few years ago, it was big eight, then it became big 10, and now it's big 13. Yeah. Things, so, such a small little thing like naturalizing. 
uh, which is which is a uh, it's it's a word with an incredible content because it only means that when you once in a while once in a while enjoy a forest then you you already are more protected against an enormous amount of diseases uh, naturalizing yeah. uh, you can never compensate the the benefit of nature with whatever so-called essential medicine. Yeah. Uh, nature is essential. Medicines are a therapy, which is not the same thing. Yeah. So I don't need for, to be healthy. I don't need any medicine. I, but I don't even need a supplement. I only need to take care of the big 13. Naturalize, socialize, think once in a while, feel and give yourself permission, sleep, eat, and breathe. Yeah. And perhaps only three of the big 13 needs therapy. I'm going to give you one example. Light pollution, uh, light pollution is, is the most important cause of restless legs and Parkinson, two big diseases uh, which are becoming pandemic. Which is logical because there is no, there is no darkness anymore. Yeah. There is hardly Parkinson in Patagonia, in the south of Argentina. You know why? There's no light pollution. <laughs> so how can we get rid of the light pollution? We cannot do that more anymore with only lifestyle interventions uh, because of the of the fact that the light pollu is pollution is so big that if you don't do not use blue filter uh, glasses, which is a medicine, which is a therapy, you, um, the light is going to affect the, the, the all, all kind of uh, parts of your health. So that's a therapeutic need, but it does not mean that I need a, a to go to sleep. No, I, I, I mean, that is a that is a lovely separation, and I think what what we're what we're saying here is that the use essential by the WHO is misleading. Um, but you're absolutely right, therapy. So let, let let's go on to looking at what we're doing to our children in terms of building that incredibly sophisticated immune system. The the view is that we need to be shooting them up with you know, ever more vaccines, the technology, the platform is being used for them is changing. We've now got, you know, DNA recombinant technology. We're moving into mRNA as a technology. Um, does the same thinking apply that we should just be rolling our kids around in the dirt and allowing them to mix and share their, their, their microbiomes with one another? Mm. Um, or, are we so weak that there is some value in um, priming, which is the view that's taken um, the immune system um, with childhood vaccines? Mm. If you if you if you um, see the the so-called hygiene hypothesis, yeah, which many people interpret completely uh, wrong, yeah, because it does the hygiene uh, hypothesis does not mean that you should not wash yourself anymore. <laughs> you still have to wash yourself, yeah? and if you live in a city like New York, it is good once in a while to use soap. Yeah? 
really believe me, uh, because all the nanoparticles in your skin, uh, if they if they penetrate, come in your brain, then that's not good for you. That's not good for yourself. Uh, rather not. So once in a while, wash yourself is a good thing. That's not that's not about hygiene. Mm -hmm. Hygiene means the lack of contact with old friends. Like like a, a, an old friend, uh, like like um, Helmut, mm -hmm. and an old friend like Streptococcus missus from from uh, a forest. An old old friends we lack old friends, mm -hmm. and and what we have done uh, is because of crowding humans, yeah, a, an enormous amount of new. Uh, and and I do it like this. Enemies are now part of our natural environment. Okay, so how strong, how fast is human? Are human beings to recognize, let's say, a possible pathogenic microorganism? And how how fast can human beings develop an immune uh, response? which is more than enough to save our life and not and not to become ill no. and and covid-19 has shown us something which makes a lot of sense nobody would have needed any vaccine if the following would have happened one person is contaminated doesn't matter get fever it's good for him good for her and and i have contact with that person if i would have developed next day symptoms there would not have been one problem at all because it is not true that there is something like an incubation time that is an old wrong word in immunology because it does not exist it is not true that we need seven days to acquire um, activity of the adaptive immune system. Mm. That's not true. Uh, it, this is about hours. So you, so a normal non-fragile person can mount new antibodies in 24 hours without any problem. And they then do this, that on the innate side of their immune system, which I think no, is no, no. It's about it's 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 about uh, a cell type, uh, which is the bridge between the innate and the acquired immune system. That cell type is yeah. so incredible fast, uh, but so much down-regulated metabolically in, in, in modern humans that the response is too weak and too slow. And this that, is on dendritic cells and toll-like receptors. That it's, 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 called, it's called the invariable natural killer cell. Okay. Yeah, uh, which is an innate cell with an acquired receptor, a T cell receptor. And that thing is in minutes in the infection. The only thing is to respond in a specific way, it needs an enormous amount of energy, but an enormous amount of energy. Therefore, you need metabolic permission. The permission given is by leptine. So if you then suffer before that you um, have to face such a, such a 
uh, a virus, a low-grade inf inflammatory state because of cytokine resistance, then you cannot mount such a really benign, very beneficial response with high fever uh, and, and everybody is happy because you come out of it like a very strong, long-living human. So, so the resume is, are we too fragile to survive new pathogens? The word, the word is, I, and I'm going to refer to half an hour ago, the default plan is the opposite. The default plan is that we, at time, mount the right response. But for that, we need to make people less fragile. And if we are not making them less fragile, perhaps the vaccine can help a little bit. Uh, that's... Uh, that, that's, yeah, in, interesting viewpoint. So the, the big 13, those ideas, non-pharmaceutical support of the body um are generally you know partitioned off into the field of of public health yes you know primary secondary tertiary healthcare can engage with what you're calling therapy um you know how does that model work how would we recreate a model that would work better for people to to get better outcomes because the the public health model is generally built around the response of whole populations and we're all different and we all have you know lived in different environments and our genes are expressing differently mm. how do we balance this so that we can have um not just an effect on the small number of people that are studying and benefiting from clinical psychoneuroimmunology but how can we benefit this to create a sea change mm. that actually allows humans to re-engage with health systems that actually work for us. Mm. If, 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 you, if you look at worldwide in developed countries, um, the governments using lifestyle medicine as preventing part of, of, of uh, let's say, uh, public health uh, politics, then the first thing where things go wrong is the fact that the way you transfer knowledge has to be personalized uh, and it cannot be universal be because of one one simple thing how far people still have their free will when for instance at the level of the hypothalamus they suffer leptin and insulin resistance believe me then the primitive brain takes over you get bottom-up um, no, uh, behave, behavior and not top-down behavior. So if then a government comes with a beautiful plan, yeah, the people say, very interesting, but I'm not even capable of doing it. If I don't eat seven times a day, I don't do not have energy in my brain, I can't work. No. So that is not, that's not a way to transfer, transfer knowledge. Um, what you say, public health is public, the solution is individual. Start start with universal transfer of knowledge, which is not information, eh? because information is all, the, 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 the internet is full of information. I'm, I really talk about knowledge. You can transfer knowledge 
uh, in a public way. You don't need to to individualize that yeah? knowledge transfer. How can we make people comply? And the first thing you have to do is get rid of the feeling of guilt. Yeah? So many people feel guilty. They say, I cannot, I, I'm, I'm not disciplined. Yeah? I cannot maintain my diet. I, I know I have to exercise, but, I, but I'm not able to because, because my body does not give permission and they feel guilty. Guilt is the best way to stop moving. So, 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 so all those, all those wrong political ways to make people moving, eh, because that's it's about moving, it's about making decisions, are based are based on fear. There's nothing worse. Yeah, there's not another worse way to uh, produce compliance than the use of fear. We learned, so, we learned a lot about that over the last three years. Exactly. And we've seen that. We've seen that that, that does not function. So I do not agree that lifestyle medicine, the big 13, is not a universal um, project. It is universal. Uh, and then 80%, we can do all of us. 80% is not a problem. And that that other 20%, that, that, that gives therapist um a reason of living because if we do everything with a lifestyle intervention which is possible then we would we, we would not have physicians physicians anymore no therapist anymore and we also have to eat so so let's use those 20 percent for the professional and the 80 percent for uh, using knowledge transfer Right. Well, that I mean, that means a the knowledge transfer has to be the right kind of knowledge transfer, and and um, I mean that's something that that absolutely you're engaged with with clinical psychoneuroimmunology. We're engaged with it as a, as a, as a nonprofit, and and we're mm -hmm. talking while we might have a few differences of opinion. The the basic thrust, and particularly putting nature at the heart of it, and understanding our relationship with old friends. Nature the system is 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 absolutely critical but we still have the bulk of mainstream medical doctors i think being taught the wrong thing if we if we start looking at how how we need to restructure education particularly in medicine what does that look like going forward think think you know next next few decades um how can we do that do you think there will automatically come a point where the the wisdom of humankind will get the better of the profit-driven motives that have turned a lot of certainly general practitioners into drug company sales reps. Uh, mm, the 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 change is not by re-educating um, the doctors. The change is by educating the end consumer. Mm. It is the demand producing the change and not the change producing the demand. The niche is there. People are fed up with all kind of specialist treatments. People know that if they have a high blood pressure and skin problems and depression and cannot sleep, 
that they have to have something to do with each other. Uh, so they're fed up. Uh, and But so much that they that a lot of people are now searching for pseudo scientists yeah and and that's a pity because we have we have in the complementary so called alternative uh, part of 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 um, uh, of health uh, in the health system fantastic professionals mm. uh, but they are mixed with pseudo scientists so what's happening is that the people, they have lost their brain. They don't know where to go anymore. It is one hell of a, of a chaotic world yeah, in which nobody knows where he or she wants to belong to. We were together uh, at, at, at the Congress of in Integrative Medicine. And I asked the, 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 the organizer, look, it is full of stats with all kinds of supplement, supplements. Why did you not invite Johnson and Johnson? Why did you not in, in, invite Klaxo Smith Klein? And she said, "No, no, no." I said, "But this is exactly the problem. Uh, if you if you polarize, polarizing is good. Polarizing is good to change something, but you have to start a real discussion. Uh, feminism was a need to produce the conflict." and to start to discuss all those stupid things men, not women, invented about gender, that there would be a man and women in all kinds, that, that the difference would be so, so big. Now, now we know that that is a, 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 a thing uh, which is imposed by men. Uh, there is not uh, so many difference between women and men as we think. The same here. Uh, if we want to change something, then we should uh, revolutionize the end consumer. And, and they are capable of producing the change. No, that, that's fantastic. Um, Leo, it, it has been amazing uh, to talk to you. Um, I think a lot of people who are listening to this, um, both sides of the pond are going to be really interested. We're going to have um, links to um, what your um uh, uh, institute is now teaching in the in the field of um, clinical psychoneuroimmunology just very briefly um you've talked about the importance of the end consumer do you need to be a practitioner to sign up for one of your courses what are the entry requirements mm, look it is um the the uh, our study is an official master uh, of the of the pontificial university of salamanca so the master title you can only get if you have a medical or paramedical background. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, the people are interested in the in the uh, materia, and if they, although they, uh, perhaps they are naturopath, uh, which I don't know if the university is going to accept. Doesn't matter if they do, do not have a bachelor, but they are nutritionist, um, or in in, in England, um, a lot of natural uh, therapists. They are welcome, obviously, and the end consumer is also welcome, uh, but cannot get the master title, obviously. But they can run the course. And how long does the course run for? It is, um, it are in, in total 18 modules. 
of a few of them are four days uh, immunology diagnostics and the p and the p and i and the other one are three days it's hybrid hybrid uh, so that means the first six days are um, always live this uh, the first international course is going to start in london uh, next year but every year we we will do the first six days in another uh, city wherever over the world in sydney in new york and in, in abu dhabi uh, um, because we want to uh, we are already in 16 countries now this is the first time that we're going to do the international course uh, and um, and we want to reach out to all english-speaking people worldwide it's very exciting and will people get a chance to go hunt wild animals and eat them with you of course, uh, because we have uh, the intermittent living uh, project. We do that in uh, Peru, in Patagonia, in Sweden, in Spain, uh, and a lot of. Uh, and um, yeah, it, it's an it's an incredible project. And the, the only thing I can say is, if if you if you have done it once, you you want that reset every year, uh, because it is really it is really a change of of of, of living. Fantastic. Leo, it's been amazing to talk to you as always. And um, we look forward to working more together as we move forward in this huge reorganization of how humans do healthcare. Okay. Thank you very much, Robert. And uh, I hope that we uh, have another discussion soon. Thank you, Leo. Thank you. Thank you.